Today, I'm joined by Dom Patterson, multi-award winning and much beloved poet, and now author of one of the most extraordinary and refreshing memoirs I've had the pleasure to read, Toy Fights, A Boyhood. Charting the first two decades of the poet's life, from his birth in Dundee to his move to London, Toy Fights is a book about many things, music, class, religion, origami, money, mental illness, and family, of course. It's also about poetry, although perhaps in a more oblique way than the reader might be expecting. Toy Fights is both uproariously funny and yet profoundly tender, and manages to be so, I'd contest, because it is stuffed with that ingredient by which any memoir succeeds or fails. No, not sugar, although I'm sure we'll come onto that too, but authenticity. It's also a deeply political book, although one which not only eschews ideology and facile categorizations of class, but vigorously pours scorn upon them. Don Patterson, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hi there. Um, I'd like to begin, I guess, by talking about the, um, the the writing of the memoir, like getting into it. At the moment you write, I'm the kind of writer who writes because they do what they are, not because they love what they do. Um, and I'd be curious to know, was there a moment where doing what you are, when, when you felt that like you were no longer or currently not at this moment, a poet but a memoirist was there a kind of a shift in your in your life or in your in your personality that sort of meant that the way you wanted to express yourself wasn't through poetry but through memoir that's a great question i mean it's i mean it's it's one of those questions you wish you'd had a week's notice of so i could answer it coherently i mean i think you know to be honest, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound facile, but, you know, it's maybe the same as the poetry in as much as that you're only aware of yourself as a memoirist uh, or, or indeed as a poet when it's going badly, mm-hmm. you know, and and, and and when it's going well, you, you're kind of locked into the groove of the thing. Um, mm-hmm. So when it was working, I wasn't conscious of anything other than the fact that, you know, sort of a, you know I was writing fairly fluently. Um, and, and it's those bits where you become self-conscious that you find yourself inevitably having to revise, you know. Right. Um, and and those are the bits that are full of self consciousness and uh, you know and second guessing yourself and second guessing your audience mm-hmm. and inauthenticity and all that stuff you know so I you know I try to not th- one tries to not think of oneself as anything ideally you know mm-hmm. I, I think that's the ideal state you know and when you do things tend to fall apart but yeah. but yeah no there was I was certainly aware of working in a different mode but it's um. It's funny. It's just like I've I found this sort of throughout my life is that even though you work in very different disciplines, they always kind of inform each other by analogy. So mm-hmm. you tend not to make the analogous mistake in one that, that you just made in the other. I've always found that with poetry and music, you know. So I think the same is true here. It's not like you learn nothing. There are a couple of transferable skills, I think, and you know, sort of, a, and how you go about these things. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested in that tension you, you just brought up between sort of this uh, writing, I guess, unselfconsciously, and then the revision, which adds that element of self-consciousness. Was that something, that element of self-consciousness, something that you resisted or you tried to resist during the revision? Or was the tension something which you you embraced and which you felt sort of added to the um, the texture, if you like? Of yeah, the- I mean, there's a difference, I think, between self-consciousness, which is really always bad. Um, you know, and then artifice, you know, which is, uh, mm-hmm. which is the fact that you're aware of the fact that this isn't a good sentence and needs to be a good sentence. Right. So how are you going to close the gap between what it is and what it ideally would like to be? So I think you're just, you're just, a, you're just conscious of what you might be adding in at that point, you know, and that's when your mm-hmm. own kind of, especially second guessing of one's, you know, so-called audience, you know, just like, well, hopefully somebody's going to read it, but, um, 
Mm-hmm. That's that's when things can go seriously astray. I think you know it's just like you know yeah. when you start thinking what might people like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, rather than what, <laughs> rather than what was true. I mean, I think the other thing is that's good to hold by is 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 you have to trust yourself, and if you and if you mm-hmm. find something entertaining, you really just have to proceed in the assumption that others will too. And if you find yeah, it boring, yeah. similarly, I mean, that's the only thing you really have to go on, you know. And if you find it funny as well, because one thing I mean, I, I mentioned in the introduction that it's a very funny book. And I know like that's one of the things that in the reviews that have started coming out already, that's one of the things people keep coming to is how how funny it is. But I also felt as when I was trying to introduce a book that I didn't want to I didn't want to make it seem like you were trying to be funny. Like I, I think as a, as a reader, you, you you feel that when the writer is sort of, you know, hoping yeah. to hit certain beats and hoping to sort of tickle their reader. And it's not that, in fact, the, the humor of this book seems to be coming from somewhere deeper and uh, somehow much less contrived. Oh, I was saying, I'm quite surprised, actually, you know, you know, now that one's suddenly getting some feedback, you know, to hear that, that people found it that funny or whatever. But um <laughs> Because I certainly hadn't intended to write a funny memoir. You just write, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I can't stand things that aren't funny, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there are very few subjects. The sciences I can understand. <laughs> but I think it's kind of outrageous that anyone can write either literature or anything to do with literature and take it so seriously that they can't be humorous, you know. It's just, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's what it's it's a dimension that gets us through this life, you know. And, and it's, there seems to be very little excuse or very few subjects so serious you know, that they have to rule out, you know, sort of a, a good joke if the opportunity arises. I just, you know, it's yeah. just, it's, um, I like to laugh. I know most other people like to laugh, you know, and, and, um, and I think it's a serious subject, laughter, you know, I think it's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a serious literary dimension to things. And, you know, when I read prose, I always find if it, if it's, if it's completely lacking, it's, it's a bit impoverished, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the subject of kind of, I guess, serious, um, serious subjects, one um, thing that you, you you talk about in the introduction, if if I'm remembering rightly, is that you talk about having begun this memoir some time ago, and then you write that you, um, you lost interest in yourself. Um, and then you say, then my dad died. Um, and I found that really striking as a, as a sentence, because um, interestingly enough, the other podcast I'm recording this month is with um, the American novelist Elizabeth McCracken, whose oh, new right. book uh, is to dealing, um, it's sort of a memoir, but dealing with the death of a mother. Um, and of course, when we think of sort of other sort of monumental memoirists of recent years, uh, someone like uh, Carlo Vicknausgaard, his whole project began with the death of his father. Um, and so I'm curious to know, do you think there's something sort of, almost inherent, in, not necessarily memoir writing, but specifically for you in writing a memoir, that the death of your father spurred you in some way to write this particular this particular book. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of complicated, isn't it? I mean, it's just, you know, and, and I don't want to sit here and just rehearse all the cliches about that, you know, that situation, but it's, um, I mean, it's the gift that, you know, sort of, you know, the, 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 you know, the death of someone that you love gives you is that they do clear a space, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. which thought can take place and, and memory can take place and what can be done. And, and it's, and, and it's not something easily articulable, but, you know, sort of, um, mm-hmm. but certainly there was honor involved, you know, and I felt in mm-hmm. some ways bad that I wasn't able to have completed the book, you know, in a way that my father could have read it, although he couldn't mm-hmm. read anything the last four years. Um, so there was definitely a, a you know, an urge to kind of honor him, but also a, a sense of space having suddenly freed up, 
in a way that allowed me, you know, sort of some honest perspective on events that I don't think I, I, I could have permitted myself while he was alive, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not yeah, just as yeah. simple as worrying about what he would think, you know, through, you know, if I depicted someone in a particular way. It was a, it was a much subtler, weirdly mm-hmm. sort of dimensional sort of experience of, 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 of possibility where before there hadn't there hadn't been any. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a, a, a incredibly useless answer, but it's it's a, it's it, yeah, it's not something I can easily describe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm cu- I'm curious to know as well, and I mean this is is probably um, absurd to, to ask you to speculate in, in this respect, but do you think it would have been a fundamentally different book had it been sort of spurred by the death of your mother? Do you think there's sort of this, in in a sense, the book, this memoir tilts in some way uh, towards your father's story more so than than your mother's because it was this event which, which spurred. No, I don't think so. I think there's probably as much of my mom in there, you know. But I think the one thing that 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 um that, that sort of cast my father's shadow over the book was I was sort of actually a weird thing to do with his dementia, which I was very conscious of the fact that you know you know it's all cliche about dementia, which is music pays its line far deeper mm-hmm. into the hippocampus for some reason and other kinds of memory and um initially this was supposed to be just a book about music you know and about playing in bands mm-hmm. in dundee and you know and funny anecdotes about that stuff uh you know um but i was i was as anyone would be who'd, who'd been through this very sort of moved by the extent that my father used sort of music and guitars especially uh, mm-hmm. as a kind of mnemonic system you know, mm. um, so I suddenly realized that just by sort of, you know, recreating the soundtrack, I could remember everything that I'd forgotten. When I tried to write this thing before, I just wasn't inclined to do it because for whatever reasons, I was suppressing and forgetting far too much. But if I could, if I could remember what I was listening to, um, mm. then it could bring everything back. Um, and that was something that I, that, that, that I, I actually took from my father's dementia. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it provided a kind of method as well as everything else of, of information retrieval, almost. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. That was going to be my my next question before we sort of dive into, uh, let's say, more of the the sort of the grist, the content of the book. Was this question of memory? Because um, again, in the past, when I've when I've interviewed people who have uh, who have written written memoirs, and you know, Knausgaard is an example again. People also say, "I have a terrible memory." Um, and yet then there are these kind of, you know, yours is a close to 400 page book. Um, did you find as you started writing and in fact, they're, they're, you've just said using sort of music that it was almost like a, a snowball effect with memory. Once you'd excavated one memory, you found, you know, another sort of a collection of memories underneath that and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Once you once you found the thread, you could yank on it and it, and it would be often quite surprising what came up. Um you know, and especially in regard to things that you'd been disinclined to remember. I mean, you know, sort of, mm. a, you know, at one time in my life, I always thought I would kind of write about my experiences, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, as a mental patient, but I was just never inclined mm-hmm. to. But, uh, but I think, yeah, again, once one found the thread, it was kind of appalling what you can remember mm-hmm. and, and what was and what was lying there intact. You know, and it was a it was a kind of horrible sense at one point, which is, is there anything that you can't retrieve? You know, it, because it seems like the recorder has just been switched on, you know, sort of, you know, 24-7, you know, and it's just uh, which yeah, is a horrifying yeah, yeah. thought. And of course, that's <laughs> not true. And, you, and, 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 you know, and, and memories, obviously, you know, um, 
Yeah, for the most part, memories consist of, you know, sort of actually remembering memories, you know, but but this seemed to be mm-hmm. sort of, you know, weirdly kind of primary and active in a way that, that, that wasn't the usual, uh, you know, regurgitation of things that I'd, I'd remembered a thousand times before. So, yeah, there, yeah, there was a bit yeah, of yeah. discovery, I think, yeah. And there's a, there's a moment I um, you're, you're writing about the uh, the piano lessons, and you kind of you kind of acknowledge that sort of how this these these kind of you you are not able to really excavate a memory, and you just sort of say you know even writing this up, I've had to crawl back inside the soul compacting black hole that survives in lieu of actual memory. Um, was there? I, I suppose this is a double pronged question. Was there this kind of temptation sometimes to fill in? sort of details which you kind of maybe didn't particularly remember but just sort of would give kind of texture to uh to an anecdote and likewise was was there also an urge to kind of to 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 test your memories to to go out and to to check with people um that you were writing about that things had happened in a in a certain way yeah, I mean, you know, as to the first part, I mean, I think, yeah, there was definitely the temptation and, and no doubt I've put heads and tails on things. I mean, the only thing that you hold to is, that, is that, you know, the rule that you take from poetry, which is that, you know, sometimes the facts of the matter don't serve the, serve the truth very well, you know, and you can have a kind of slightly, especially in poetry, and this isn't true of memoir, but in poetry, you can have a bizarre kind of, you know, sentimental attachment to the facts that are really kind of irrelevant in terms of getting to the emotional mm-hmm. truth or something. Um, you know, so one definitely did deploy that on occasions when you could when you could see that just recounting what had actually happened wasn't going to do the job, you know. But but hopefully, and again, you know, that's taking outrageous liberties. But you know, but 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 one would hold that you you were just trying to make it more true. As far as the other stuff's concerned, I think only when it really affected other folk, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and it was also going to be something they could remember, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to make sure that, that not that the accounts tallied. But at least that they were vaguely synoptic, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think that's just a courtesy. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, um, as, as it's it's clear, um, like pretty much any any memoir, particularly of young childhood, is going to be very um, very family centric, um, and in, in its particularly in the early years, uh, and that's and that's very much the case here. And your your um, your your mother and father are both very sort of distinctly drawn um, characters in. This book, I mean, characters probably isn't the isn't the right word. They are participants, let's say, um, in uh, in this book. But one thing, one thing that really struck me uh, was you said that if your mum and dad refuse to fuck you up or display no talent for it or leave the job half done, you have to fuck yourself up, and and that seems to feed into this idea that you know this is not to say you know your parents had their had their troubles and you know and we'll, we'll go into to some of these, but the. The sense we get uh, as readers right from the start and which which persists right up to, to, to the moment where you leave home is that sort of this essentially loving and solid and um, I guess nurturing um, environment, despite a lot of the things that were going on around it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's an odd thing to sort of reckon with, you know, you know, and the, the easiest thing would be it's desperately, I mean, I, I suppose I have to, you know, one has tried to tease out the ways in which, you know, sort of, you know, your parents have fucked you up, sort of, you know, but in, mm-hmm. but in my case, it was really inadvertent, you know, it was just, a, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, despite my efforts to write a misery memoir, it's just, it, there wasn't any material to work with. I mean, I've got a really strong, loving, brilliant family um, that, you know, they're all crazy and neurotic as everyone is, you know, sort mm-hmm. of, a, a, and inevitably we'll, we will have laid that shit at each other in a formative mm-hmm. way. Um 
But yeah, so um, and I do think there's a certain truth in that, and you know that whole thing about having to fuck yourself up, especially if you work in the arts. You know, it's just like you you, mm-hmm. you need some kind of fracture, uh, you know, uh, and, and and some kind of belly of the wheel kind of experience in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I, I should have stolen this thought from Yates somewhere, and I can't find its origin. <laughs> but, it's, um, but yeah, but I think if you have a happy childhood, you know, it's it's uh, it's a bit of an impediment, you know. So it's um, mm-hmm. so you have to seek trouble. Which yeah, is never yeah, hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly in Dundee, it seems. In the, uh, in the no, that would be true. Like Unfortunately, it. that would be true. Yeah, yeah, much as I love it. Yeah. Mm. But you, I mean, we, we, you, you mentioned that it, that it was originally going to be a book, um, so essentially a music memoir about the bands yeah. you played in and stuff. And early on, you described the book as music obsessed, and it's clear that the. Um, that are the I guess the the source of it, not necessarily your obsession, but at least your sort of your musical education, comes from from your father, um, and I, I found it a really interesting portrait because I think we often tend to think of sort of professional musicians uh, these days, even I suspect it's it's not true for most, as having kind of quite a, a glamorous life in some way, or like being a life of kind of. Um, you know, occasional bouts of hard work and then a lot of maybe, uh, you know, loafing about and fiddling with the <laughs> with the instrument. And the portrait we get of your of your dad, this is sort of like this is a let's say, I guess a working musician is the best way is the best way to put it. This is a man who, you know, was out every night gigging, working himself to exhaustion in the sort of, you know, the clubs and bars of Dundee to get a kind of a decent living for his family. Is that is that something a life which do you think does still exist today or has the sort of the industry, the of sort of, I don't know, entertainment or, um, you know, uh, you know, that, that kind of bar world of bars and clubs changed to the point where the kind of job your dad did wouldn't really be around much now. No, I think it's still the same, you know, and I think increasingly mm-hmm. so because people are poorer, you know, sort of, and, you know, and I should stress that my father worked two jobs, <laughs> so he had a day job. You know, and I always thought it was quite funny that he, you know that he, that he, he was obliged to describe himself as semi-professional because, to be honest, he was a mm-hmm. lot more professional than most professionals because he was out every night of the week, and I had to, I had to work like clockwork, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a highly professional approach to that, that you know, that half of his, uh, that half of his living. But he, but he was exhausted by it. I mean, it was holding down two mm-hmm. jobs. You know, it was just a kind of absurd amount of work to take on. Um, which was normalised very early on, so we, so we didn't really notice. Um. But no, I still think that's there. You know, as to, you know, I think the, the 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 club scene sort of up here is still pretty strong. You know, the the wedding circuit. I mean, when I was in bands, we had a wedding every weekend. You know, and, and nothing's really uh-huh. changed on that front. You know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there are still folk there doing the job, beaving away. You know, sort of learning the covers. You know, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some better than others. And- you know, it's just like yeah. <laughs> but weirdly, what, I think the impression people yeah. get is very misleading in musicians. You know, just like I think it's you know sort of you know down in the down in the lower ranks. You know, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know people are highly professional and, and you know and work mm-hmm. like dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what, one thing that's also fascinating is that sort of I, I suppose again sort of lazily we often think of musicians as performers, whereas one thing you evoke so so sort of uh, profoundly is your your father's nerves and his social awkwardness and the fact that it was sort of you know that he, he he was an artist he was a musician but to actually perform his art in front of people you know it seems throughout his entire career left him racked with nerves every every night 
Yeah, he got better at it, but to start off with, I mean, it was just, I mean, you know, when I sort of realised later the kind of courage it took, you know, because, you know, for having mm. a temperament so badly suited to public performance, you know, to, to, to mm. go out and do that, you know. And once he was up there, he was fine, you know, uh, and everybody mm. has a persona and he had one too, you know, as a kind of protective carapace. But, but yeah, he, he, he wasn't he wasn't suited to that line of work, but he did it partly for the money and partly because he loved the music. So you, so you do push mm. through that. I think it's a, a, an important lesson. I think it's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. force yourself to do things that you're disinclined to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's that, that really sort of um, lovely moment where, which which felt so true and so sort of reminiscent um, of things I remember from my childhood, which would, would not, you know, not, not, not in many ways, not parallel, but was the, the fact that there's this moment when your, your dad comes back from a gig and you're there as a teenager with like some of your friends at home sort of, you know, sitting around uh, drinking tea and chatting and like, and the interaction between your dad and your friends and your kind of awkwardness that your dad might in some way be uh, both trying to ingratiate himself with your friends and also your friends kind of looking at your dad as being somebody, uh, somebody quite cool is, uh, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think my dad was ever cool, but I think I was desperate <laughs> to, appeal, to appear cool to my friends, you know, and, you know, I was kind of mortified at the, the length of time that my dad would linger in the doorway sort of trying to sort of you know as i saw it kind of ingratiate himself or or, or chat mm -hmm. to them i'm just truly mortifyingly embarrassed by these memories now you know when i think of how cruel i was to him you know just like you know because it was his house you know just like it was full of strangers you know i'm a and my friends loved him he was a really really sweet guy i mean there was no material to work with in terms of you know that you know, all guys have to do this thing where they individuate and they hate their fathers. But again, I had so little to work with. It was awful. So I had to spin it out of the thin air. But yeah, they yeah. all loved, they all loved <laughs> me. You, know. and you write at a moment that you sort of, um, you were exposed to music from uh, a very early age. I think you say like from two months, your, you know, your pram was at the back of uh, some of the, some of the bars when your, when your dad was, was gigging. And, and that's one thing we, uh, we find it's like, even though there is this sense of kind of teenage rebellion, uh in the book and in, or in some ways sort of pushing against what uh what you feel at the time your parents might stand for it seems that like the, on the subject of music it's almost it's, it's it's irresistible like that sort of that sort of inheritance and that sort of early education you couldn't you know how maybe however much you wanted to or how much you tried turn away from uh from this love yeah, I mean, that was just a credible bit of good fortune on my part, really. Well, I think it was. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just, <laughs> who knows, you know, I just I always love that, you know, sort of that, that Buddhist story about sort of, you know, the guy watching, you know, the farmer watching his, you know, sort of, uh, you know, farmhouse burn down in the middle of the night, you know, and, the, and you know, and his neighbor strolls up next to him and says, well, that's bad luck, isn't it? And, and the guy says, well, we'll see. You know, so I'm never very sure, you know, if it was if it was good fortune, my early exposure, because it does sort of set a path for the earth that wouldn't have been available otherwise. But um, either way, that's how it went down. But the, but, the, but the good thing was my father was running the Dundee Folk Club at the time, and it was in the sort of absolute mm -hmm. heyday of, the, of the, the kind of British folk revival when there was like amazing stuff coming to town. So it wasn't just music I was being exposed to then. It was like the cream of the, you know, sort of the UK mm -hmm. and American folk circuit then. You know, mm -hmm. so I will have heard, you know, Archie Fisher and John Martin, uh, you know, sort of, I think I heard John Martin at the age of 18 months, which is some accomplishment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Warsons, Incredible String Band. I mean, that's the stuff I was listening to in my prom, so which is pretty cool. You know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. And as, as, as for your mum, there's this really interesting um, and quite sort of tragic 
dynamic, I guess, between um, between you and your mum that's forged in your early life, which is um, the loss of uh, your brother, who was um, just, well, not not stillborn, but was born on and died two days uh, two days later. And and there's a sense um, I, I felt at least in the book that you were sort of, in one sense, trying to understand the effect that that had on the relationship between you and your mother and how and 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 how how she you know she she was as a parent to you but also i felt perhaps correct me if i'm wrong but a certain resistance on your part to sort of to perhaps over explain to look for kind of uh an answer or a key to something that might um perhaps oversimplify the uh the relationship between you and your mother yeah i'm very uh, skeptical about the idea that everything relates back to something that happened in your childhood you know it's just like mm-hmm. and you know and i think a lot of things are just genetic you know and 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 they're laid out uh pretty much for you um and your dna mm-hmm. and you know and it's just i'm i'm very wary of these facile explanations for one's behavior but th- th- there was a very striking incident you know and it's just like in every shrink i've ever had uh, you know is that their, their eyes have lit up whenever it comes to it you know which is this kid you know this kid this brother that should have been between me and my brother stevie um uh died on my birthday you know, mm-hmm. so uh, so that seems to be a sort of significant event, and you know, and forging the kind of relationship I have with with my mom, which is uh, which is uh, you know very very close and highly neurotic, you know, and yes. and, and you know just insanely kind of interdependent and, and weird, you know, and um, and often based on strange things to do with sugar and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and possibly kinds of you know scottish versions of moonshine by proxy i don't know i mean it's, it's um, you know so something weird happened between me and my mom you know so uh, yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, treats came in the form of the historical Scottish delivery system of the tray bake. The chocolate crispy, made of cornflakes, melted chocolate and horse glue, was a jagged confection as painful to eat as a pine cone. Millionaire shortbread, in our imagined gilded futures, what Caribbean cruise, what Learjet trip, what cocktail at the Ivy would be complete without a slab of shortbread covered in toffee and cooking chocolate? I stuffed my face with it and felt like 007. The name's bomb. James Bond. There was something lumpy called Tiffin, which appeared to be made of reconstituted tray bakes and the rare peppermint slice, which was regarded as a health food because it tasted like toothpaste. But the doyen, the dauphin, the deus pater of tray bakes was, of course, Scottish tablet, which essentially dispensed with all the other ingredients and got straight down to business. The feeling of tablet is as hard to describe as masturbation. Can you remember how it felt to walk before you could walk? No, you can't. So stop asking me. That's a callback, folks. And it makes more sense in context. Nor can you watch me eat it, for I'm going to eat it like a, a fat Labrador in the corner, angrily and alone. Tablet is a kind of crystalline fudge made from sugar, condensed milk, more milk, butter, more sugar. And that might be all, actually. It is an alchemical procedure, not a recipe. All is stirring, adding, pausing, timing, condensing, cooling and waiting. The result is a semi-hard square of fawn heaven that tastes like what it is, 40 pints of milk squashed into a block of gold. It is milky and buttery and crumbly and both hard and soft. It is sweeter than anything you've tasted in your life, and electricity rushes up the sides of your face as your dopamine surges in anticipation of the next bite, and your inhibitory neurons throw down their rifles, tear off their uniforms, and join the lack of resistance. Tablet puts all thoughts to rest, bar those of tablet. 
to say that you cannot stop eating it would imply that you'd contemplated trying. My Manhattanite ex pointed out that the way my mother sold in package tablet in a cut square, taped up and wrapped in a parcel paper and placed individually in a Ziploc sandwich bag was identical to the way you bought a quarter of brown in the South Bronx. My mum basically owned the corner where they sold the good shit. One day she'd made an excess batch for the church sale of work. Another phrase that made no sense for years, which I heard as Zela Urg, along with a working arrangement known as De La Reese, i.e. De Release. Word got out to the kids in the estate. They started to turn up at the door, 10p in hand, and a discreet exchange would be made. Within an hour, the queue had formed and snaked back down the garden path to the bus stop, the kids getting taller as you went down the line, which ended in several shifty adults in a dinner break, keeping their eyes firmly on their shoes. I once had my play piece confiscated at school. Piece was a contraction of piece of bread, a working lunch. As a metonym, it also covered sandwich, and from there, anything put in your face between breakfast and tea time. Mum, for fear that it expire on the 10-minute walk home, had crammed around 10,000 calories, two-storey bento style, into a large piece of Tupperware, including a bar of tablet the size of my head. And even the teachers could tell it was killing me. It was one of the... I, I, I suppose one of the things, again, might maybe that you perhaps wanted to resist in many ways was the kind of, uh, I guess, certain cliches about... Uh, Scotland and Scottish life and uh, and Scottish habits, and yet I have to say, like the 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 writing on sugar and the writing on food uh, was some of the, some of the most glorious in the book. And it just, it seems a moment like, and at certain moments you kind of you know you, you resist the the cliches, and other moments, and I think if food is the one of the cases, you kind of lean into it and uh, sort of perhaps even even embrace and celebrate this uh, uh, this side to the. Yeah, up to a point, you know, it's just like, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but the the, the whole sugar thing is is really interesting because it's great and it's delicious, but uh, but it's also Mm. just a drug, you know, and one has to write about Uh it like a drug because it's (laughs) just just, uh, are not drug-like, you know, but are pharmaceutical. I mean, that's why, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why the working classes are addicted to sugar. It's an analgesic, you know, and it's sold to them as an analgesic and that's the reason it's never regulated, you know, and it's just like, and Mm -hmm. it's actually a, hugely serious subject i think it's it's a deliberate ploy you know to make sure they die early and that's usually the way that mm-hmm. it pans out um so uh but it's also funny you know and it's, it's just like yeah. the shooter thing it's nuts <laughs> because it's like no drug is presented in such a farcical you know sort of a, a, a fashion especially in scotland um yeah, but yeah, i yeah. think it's a very scottish thing to do and, and you know and, and unfortunately it's probably you know ties in with that thing that you'd have a cliche mm-hmm. about the you know the, the kind of Scottish psyche, this addictive personality, and you know, self-destructive mm-hmm. nature that we would yeah, have yeah, found yeah. a way to make things much sweeter than anyone else. You know, so yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can do let's, incredible uh, things little... with sugar, just sugar and milk. You, yeah. know, you wouldn't believe it. Really, <laughs> alchemical. You know, it's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about um, about Scotland. There's there's a sentence that really intrigued me, which um, I don't think you particularly un pack and you just kind of leave it there almost for the reader to uh to wonder about which is you you write i'm a scot i do not think of myself as british i love england above all above all other nations um and then that says i guess maybe that's something which we which would could be unpacked if you write a a follow-up to this about the time that you uh you lived in england but could you just talk a little bit about that sort of um i suppose that that dichotomy about like a feeling and considering yourself Scottish and yet, you know, perhaps 
maybe I, again, I'm leaning into cliche, but perhaps uncharacteristically having an enormous affection for. Uh, I, I should say, I think between the proof and the and the book, I've I did add the words uh, above all other nations, excepting my own, just in case there was any sort of mm. you know confusion there. You know, so it's just. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But actually, you know, partly that was just preemptive because the idea that somehow, you know, as a, as a Scottish nationalist or a patriot or whatever you, you want to call me, um, there's any anti-English element to this whatsoever, I think, had to be headed mm-hmm. off in the past. And it's a cliche and it's just nonsense. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't nonsense maybe 30 years ago, you know, where, where that yeah. was... Um, that was quite present in Scottish culture, you know, but I mean, there are so many kind of, you know, sort of uh, English new Scots up here just now, um, you know, and and uh, and the independence movement here is many things, but to call it anti-English is just pure ignorance. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. We do wish things were better there, you know, and it's just like, you know, mm-hmm. but, 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 but our, you know, sort of, our loathing is entirely directed towards Westminster, not English, you know, uh-huh. um, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it seemed important, you know, to make that point. You know, it's just, you know, just yeah, to yeah, sort yeah. of kick into touch, really, just in case it was going to come mm. up. Um, yeah. Concerning um, concerning Dundee specifically, now um, I must admit I've I've never visited um, Dundee. I spent quite a bit of time in Edinburgh and quite a bit in Glasgow. Um, but uh, I think, like a lot of people, one of recently one of the the contacts that I've had with Dundee is through HBO's Succession as the kind of homestead of um of logan roy which you uh which of course you mention um you mention in the book but uh it sounds like 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 dundee it sounds like both an extraordinary place with this sort of very rich uh history i mean there's a moment where you say uh if we'd kept these wonderful precincts intact dundee would have been preserved as a kind of boreal naples and yet at the same time uh you describe it as being essentially destroyed by a systematic program of municipal vandalism. So it's sort of, it's almost like we feel like we're being invited to sort of explore the the ruins of a once great city in a way. Yeah, it's better now is all I can say, you know, and, and for years I was just putting the boot into it because it seemed unforgivable, you know, just like, you know, sort of, a, you know, every new wave of council leadership just visited some other mm-hmm. horror on the place or took money or was obliged to take money, you know, in, in order to sort of wreak some other act of, you know, sort of, architectural destruction you know but i mean i think things have definitely gotten better it's looking pretty cool these days actually you know it's just like Mm -hmm. and they've opened up the old 19th century kind of seafront um you know sort of uh, you know to the river now uh, you know uh, bar a couple of you know sort of you know very dundee style ugly ass you know call centers (laughs) just like i mean you can't you i mean you got you know you got to give a little um yeah yeah yeah, i mean it's definitely things are definitely improving but it's a weird it's a weird time I mean, you know, and, and it's just, you know, but it's also very warm and it's like it's it's really hard to get the student population to leave. You know, it's just like I think it has the highest, sort of, you know, sort of um, approval rating from from students, uh, you know, of mm-hmm. any city in the UK. I mean, they just love it there. It's it's really cheap and it's really friendly. Um, uh-huh. But, but certainly yeah. about the the period that you're writing about, there there is this sense of sort of um, almost like, I guess, the 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 people of Dundee feel like they've been been abandoned um, and sort of all left to, you know, le- left in a, in a, cr- in a crumbling city and uh, basically. Left yeah. I mean, they were left with some interesting things though. They were, le- they were left with, you know, sort of a, a, you know, a weird idea about the sort of Scottish democratic intellect, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, 
and a need to kind of be brilliant, albeit within the confines of your own council house, you know. And um, uh-huh. you know, so things were quite competitive there. Um, it's always been sort of, you know, um, very musical. There's always been really great music come out of Dundee. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, from from the the average white bands, you know, sort of onwards, really. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, sorry, I've lost a lot. I've lost a thread, Adam. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what were we talking it's, about? It's interesting. You put me in mind of uh, I interviewed the Scottish novelist um, David Keenan a few months ago, um, and he, he's his most recent book takes place in uh, Airdrie in the seventies, and, and you you do get that sense of sort of um, some massive creativity, not a, I guess not not sort of limited as you say by like the walls of the council house, but in some way sort of um, yeah sort of expressed, it in, in almost in a kind of symbi- symbiotic way with it. You get this kind of increasing kind of originality because you don't have necessarily the uh i guess the funding and the exposure and the connections that you might have in uh i don't know in a place like london for example oh, and also i think they needed to kind of distinguish yourself it's just like you know because you know everyone's house looked the same you know so mm-hmm. i think that kind of weirdly sort of propels you sort of you know you know in a really heterogeneous kind of direction you know so i think there was the need for everyone to be distinct you know, because at the time, you know, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't buy a council house, and you and you and you know, and you, and you could modify it, you know, with a with a cartwheel and a, you know, and a, and uh, some yeah. stone lines in in the front, you know. So, um, you had to find kind of other ways of expressing your uh, distinctness. I think, yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, one one thing that is specific to to places as well is the the language or the you know and the and the different dialects that people speak. It's always struck me as a very odd thing that that we regard that as far more effective that than far more affected than um, mm-hmm. uh, than than aspirational dialects, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there seems to be no good reason for that other than sheer snobbery, you know. I think I think right. it's it's a good thing to you know to you, you know to have that. If it's the only way that you speak, you know, just like that can be weird. But 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 there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with being bidialectal, which which I am now. You know, sort of a, you know, and also having that tongue as well as you know the the one that you do podcasts in or give lectures in. You know, uh-huh. where you can be sure. <laughs> comprehensible to hopefully a wider audience. But it's um, <laughs> this is not the way I speak in a Dundee cab. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But you know that's nice because I mean it's just like why wouldn't you want an exclusive and intimate register? You know that that mm-hmm. only you had access to. I mean it's just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then another thing, which is particularly pertinent just to obviously where I'm recording from and that I just found really interesting was the um, uh, the older Dundee words derived from French and, you know, the connections with the the old alliance. Um, And, uh, you know, like these are, you know, words like, uh, well, you know, I'm going to probably mess up the pronunciation here, but, uh, you know, words like, the candy be coming from the French, like culvert, which is sort of um, yeah. It's, I just find that always really fascinating how these kind of linguistic inheritances linger and tend to linger in the uh, in the slang of a particular of a particular region. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, and you know, and they tend to focus themselves on really specific sort of you know things that we, you know we, that we clearly had in common. Weirdly, sort of concerned mm. with. Mostly patisserie and plumbing for some reason. It's uh-huh. you know, a lot of French comes up. French plumbing seems an odd thing to imitate, but there we go, you know. But yeah. Yeah. And you keep, the more you listen, the more, you know, especially in, you know, that really ex, really deep kind of, you know, sort of Ori, as we say in Dundee, really deep Dundee mm-hmm. dialect, you would continually turn up really strange 
words that were clearly artifacts of some kind of, you know, sort of, mm. you know, sort of frankly, you know, mashup, you know. Um, uh-huh. You're still uncovering them, yeah, even now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You said um, you said earlier, kind of, I guess, half jokingly, that you uh, you sort of tried but failed to uh, to write a misery memoir. Um, and that's and that's one thing that that is particularly striking, I think, about the book is the way um, the way you write about class, because um, it's at once, uh, you know, it's a book which is clearly steeped in. And I'm putting this in very sort of heavy scare uh, quotes, kind of working class uh, culture and working class life. And yet there's also, uh, you know, this is not a book which, uh, let's say, embraces the. Um, the sort of the, the cliches or the sort of the touchstones of the kind of misery memoir or the sort of or the kitchen sink memoir. It's sort of it's it seems that that's something that you were really determined to do was to give a sort of again I use the word sort of an authentic uh, portrayal of life in the so-called working class as you as you lived it rather than um, let's say wanting to kind of wanting to kind of press the buttons of things that might. Uh, uh, appeal to a, maybe a, perhaps a more middle class London based. Well, that's exactly country. right. I mean, that all comes from there. The whole misery memoir thing mm-hmm. is really writing for that audience, you know, and writing for the, the expectations of that audience, mm-hmm. and often entirely wrongly second guessing their expectations, you know, of, of what you should be doing. You know, but it doesn't seem much point to having a middle class income and a middle class vocabulary. They're just going to use it to spend the usual cliches about working class life and how terrible it was, but mm-hmm. it wasn't terrible. It was different. Aspects of it were terrible, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, but not often the ones that, you know, sort of uh, people might think of, but, um, but yeah, there was never any question that I was, that one was going to do that, you know, but I think there's, again, especially in the Celtic nations, but we're bad at this, you know, sliding into the old poor mouth stuff and it's, it's, um, uh, you know, and we we'll have to remember, you know, not to think of, of ourselves as busking the, the, the you know, the, the, the middle class for a, for a living here, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of people have made the same kind of journey from working class to middle class, you know. So it's just like, it's, mm-hmm. it's not like a, some kind of unique tale of crawling from the pit here. I mean, it's just like, I mean, this is a very, <laughs> sort of, you know, just, I mean, the, the, the working classes for the most part, are, it's an aspirational class. A lot of people leave mm-hmm. it. And, and for the most part, you know, they're, they're encouraged to. You know, parents are very yeah, proud yeah, of them, yeah. you know. Um, so it's not an unusual sort of, you know, sort of a, you know, trajectory in that regard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, there's one moment where you sort of observed that you said mostly we didn't feel broke, being no better or worse off than our neighbours. And I think that's a really sort of a crucial point is that sort of often uh, there's this sort of these these so-called, let's use the term misery memoirs, are kind of steeped in this idea of sort of, feeling and sort of embodying this sense of kind of, of poverty and destitution. Whereas in fact, uh, when when you're surrounded by people who have more or less the same level of income and sort of level, lifestyle as you, you don't feel it until then you are confronted by it on, uh, you know, by, you know, going to a, maybe a different city or leaving, yeah. Uh, yeah. leaving the neighborhood in which you grew up. Yeah, in our case, it was Edinburgh. I mean, that was always the most stark mm-hmm. contrast. I mean, have that said, I mean, there were always families within the estate, you know, sort of who were notably more destitute than the rest of us, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know and, and, and it was tragic to think about them, you know, just really, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how to, I know exactly how to find himself in that situation, but it was, it was desperate, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, but people who really couldn't look after themselves. Um, but yeah. for the rest of us, for the most part, you know, it was, it's also helped by the fact that it was socially immobile. You know, so mm-hmm. so because nobody travelled, 
you know, and, and a lot of kids I knew hadn't been over the Tay Bridge. I mean, they hadn't been into Fife, never mind to any other town, you know. You didn't have the opportunity to compare and contrast. So, But in our case, it was always going through Edinburgh in the summer holidays that was like, ah, mm -hmm. we're broke. Okay, I get it. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're yeah. broke. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, got it. Can I go home now? You know, so yeah. I can not feel mm -hmm. poor. I mean, I think, again, yeah. you know, it was an early lesson in sort of identity politics, which is like, you know, it's just like a good way to cure yourself of your identity is just to go home. You know, it's just like it's, mm -hmm. you know, you can cure yourself of your Scottish accent by coming back to Scotland. You know, it's just where you don't hear it, you know, so it's, um, yeah. and, and you can cure yourself of a certain amount of poverty, you know, by, you know, being amongst poor folk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually one, I mean, you mentioned identity politics. One of the things I found very refreshing about the book was that, let's say, uh, it's kind of ideological impurity, let's say, <laughs> is that like there seems to be, um, uh, you know, you, you are writing about, you know, the 19, <laughs> the 1970s, but you're also there's moments where you it, you can't help yourself. <laughs> you're clearly sort of, you know, you're you're writing about the perhaps the way things have turned uh, concerning. I think the way we talk about sort of oppression today, like, you know, you, you talk about how your anger is really, I think you say really what about one thing, which is the unfair treatment of the poor. And it, I get the sense that a lot of, you feel a lot of the uh, contemporary discourse is almost a sort of an attempt to deflect away from this, um, yeah, that's very crucial. Yeah, I mean, I'm fair. I mean, that's the reason that one has to, you know, sort of strongly define oneself as a certain kind of centrist, you know, just like, and I know sort of, you know, everyone laughs at radical centrism, you know, but not as hard as I laughed at, uh, at the left and the right at the moment, you know, um, uh -huh. both of whom <laughs> have dug themselves in the most ridiculous parodies of their own positions, you know, I mean, one was of the left and I would, I, I wish to God I could return to be. But they really have put these barriers up for all the talk of intersectionality. All the talk has been of sectionality. It's not, but it's not been about sort of any kind of universalism. It's not been about what we share, um, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, sort of, you know, they have thrived on you know, sort of the tribal division between naturally aligned constituencies. You can hear that I could, I could get quite right <laughs> and just go off on one, you know. But I just I've absolutely had it, you know. And the thing is, the woke thing should have been such a good opportunity. So many good causes, mm -hmm. but as ever, what do they lack? Any sense of proportionality, and also any sense that you know, sort of, you know, they would get behind, you know, sort of, you know, these these enormities that that, 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 that afflict huge portions of the population. The number of sort of so-called fucking hardworking families now falling into poverty. You know, mm -hmm. the, the zero sort of you know conviction rate on on rape and sexual assault. You know, it's just like the the, the unremunerated labor of women it's just like where mm. are the t-shirts and the flags for that shit mate you know it's just like you know that doesn't mean you do, you, you don't do the other stuff for god's sake you know but you just uh -huh. don't do it to the exclusion of the stuff that's difficult to talk about you know and and uh, and, and you know and very often affects you know sort of entire populations you know i guess one of the kind of the ironies is a lot of the people who you know, are directly affected by poverty. You just don't have the time to, you know, to to make the t-shirts or go on marches or. Well, that, this is precisely like that the point. It... That's exactly right. You know, it's just like your hardworking families don't have time for this shit, which is why they, they can easily get distracted by the right. You know, but mm -hmm. I mean, but it would be lovely to see that the left actually re-embrace those communities again. You know, which which allegedly, you know, well, which used to be the natural home. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it's so, so a, a tangent. <laughs> 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 
but you know, it's like I'm not. I'm not anti woke. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't want to come across. I'm no, just no, no. not. You know, I think there's so much good could have come out of these movements, and it's just been pathetic just seeing how it's played out. You know, you know, there was mm-hmm. no need for it to go this way. Let's talk about um, art and music because I mean we've talked a lot about sort of like the stuff that's been uh, going on around your life um, uh, that you write about in the book, but sort of as you as we 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 touched on briefly, like this this book is music obsessed uh and you know i guess in 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 many ways you know because it covers your your adolescence like music is um a is central to a a a lot of a lot of people's lives you know when they're when they're growing up but it but it feels so um yeah so 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 essential to uh the so essential to the to the poet you became in fact that sort of even more so the reader may be surprised to discover than any particular contact with with poetry or literature when you were growing up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've sort of always felt like a musician, you know. I just like I'm not, you know, I'm not a great musician. I'm a competent musician, you know, and you know, and I can I can kind of hold my own as a jazz musician, um, but it's not my kind of most natural kind of gift you know it's just like mm-hmm. a, you know a, but but those you don't get to choose i wish that it was you know and it's just a, it's um but you know but the, but the truth is the poetry thing came i kind of saw through it in terms of its artifice a little bit more quickly than mm-hmm. i saw through music you know just like it's it, and i don't mean that cynically but you have to sort of see through things in order to make the material kind of ma- manipulable and do do anything creative with it um mm-hmm. But yeah, so I had a, a more intuitive sense of that with poetry than with music. But 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 on the other hand, I've always kind of felt like a musician. I've always had music in my head, you know, sort of like sort of crazy improvised stuff from the age of six or seven, mm-hmm. you know, just like always had that going on. So there was always a need to try and find a, a, a means of expressing that and getting that out there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and also just in terms of lending any kind of emotional coherence to a really, a really turbulent time in my life. It was just an mm. absolute lifesaver. Uh, yeah. 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 There are there are moments where you have these kind of, um, I guess, kind of uh, periods of, of of obsessions. I mean, so the other one uh, was origami, which uh, which seemed yeah. to be sort of, I, I guess, again, quite 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 surprising to the reader. But there's this this period of a couple of years where you say, like, essentially, that was all you did was was yeah. was fold paper. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just that thing about having an obsessive personality, you know, and it just like uh-huh. and. The trouble with obsession is it's not choosy about what it latches onto, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, and there, there are times in my life massively which escape the, you know, the, the you know, the, the, <laughs> the scope of the book when when they, when they attach to some really destructive things, um, and but but they can be creative things as well, and they can be just random stupid shite like origami. I mean, it's just again which. No transferable skill came out of that, other than the fact that really can wrap Christmas presents quite well. But other than that, you know, so what are you going to do with that? Like nothing, you know. And it doesn't really impress anybody. I think I may have recounted a story in it when I was trying to impress some girl by folding a yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking peacock from a like a <laughs> pound note or something. You know, it's just like oh, great. Right, anyway, what we're drinking? Um, yeah. So that was a waste of time, but you know. Mm. <laughs> maybe it wasn't yeah. maybe it wasn't no, no. Who, who knows what part of your you know your brain's getting formed by sort of repetitive activity you know so who knows yeah 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 and the other kind of um i suppose i suppose we could describe it as an obsession but also weirdly it might weirdly uh, might also be seen as an act of rebellion was this kind of uh, uh religious 
phase. I don't know. That seems to feel slightly dismissive that word, but uh, this religious period that you um, that you had as a um, as a teenager, which almost in a sense you talk about how taking it to the extremes in which you took it was a way of kind of freaking out your parents. Yeah, I mean that was that was. I mean, yeah, again, that was very much sort of me and just like and you know the obsessive nature. But um, it came out. It was a period of religious mania. I think it was what it was how it went down, you know, and and how one had to recover from it. But yeah, it was partly a, an attempt to simultaneously please my mother, which has been a life game, um, you know. <laughs> uh, and um, but at the same time, you know, you have a contractual commitment to a certain kind of teenage rebellion. So I, I cleverly, I think my, my, my psyche decided that it could do both at once, you know, and just like mm-hmm. and be religious, which please mum, and you find a religion that was so extreme it would really worry everybody, which it did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, not as much as it worried me. But yeah, yeah. In the end. <laughs> yeah. And I guess in a way, all of these these events and all of these um, sort of obsessions feed into the moment which you you've alluded to, where you. Um, have a kind of a, a, essentially a mental breakdown, like a schizophrenic um, episode, and are hospitalised in a in a mental ward for a period of a period of months. Um, was that uh, like you you write uh, that it was sort of it wasn't until you were into your sort of your mid twenties that you started to feel like you were sort of able to um, to sort of to to think of yourself as not potentially on the on the precipice of of another breakdown but i'm curious as a writer now sort of several decades later was there a a fear in revisiting it now in that sort of in, in approaching it you might sort of uh again i suppose reapproach that that precipice oh that's really interesting yeah I, yeah i think that's probably true I, I hadn't thought of that and i think that's probably you know um the superstitious reason for my not having written about it before um, it was it was just straightforwardly horrible to have to go back there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one's period of recovery after afterwards is all about worrying about whether it will happen again, you know, and mm-hmm. whether there's something in you that you know that, that just is a weakness, you know, and it'll, uh, uh, you'll just find yourself sliding back into that. And I have at various points in my life, you know, when I've stupidly allowed you know sort of stress levels to get absurdly high, I've had trouble. Uh, you know, um, but I've but I've also been fortunate to have sympathetic employers. So I mean, I think you always mm-hmm. have that. But massively, it's, it's it was never quite psychotic again. Which so I'm mm-hmm. really lucky in that regard. I only you know sort of you know get get, get depression, which is awful. But it's um, but but this schizophrenia and psychosis are just it's no fun. I mean, it's just that you may have heard, yeah. but there's, there's absolutely no picnic. Um, yeah, so I just uh, yeah. Yeah, but that will have been the reason yeah. for resisting writing about it. Yeah, mm. and 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 also it's it's interesting because you you said earlier about this kind of the necessity of a of a belly of the whale incident or you know moment for 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 artists, and of course that doesn't have to be you know um, uh, a, a psychotic um, episode, um, and, and and we feel that you sort of always you don't want to admit it. You're saying kind of like this, in a sense, this this episode contributed at least to making you an artist but it feels almost that there's a yeah there's a danger somehow in in admitting that yeah i think the danger is it can be repeated as a kind of motif when you need it again uh, you know and i think mm-hmm. that's that that's unfortunately the pattern a lot of poets fall into poets but poetry is weird because it's not really a proper art form 
Um, <laughs> there's so much motivation for you. It just fucking isn't. Just drop um, that in there. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just a peculiar disposition, you know, in a certain weird sort of approach to language. That, you know, you know, it's in a certain weird sort of synesthetic disinhibition, sort of in regard to language. You know, I think, and it's probably part of a sort of a, you know an aspect of a of a larger syndrome. But anyway, just chucking it in there. But um, so there's that thing about you know sort of um, you know, the cliche about you know. I can't remember who I'm quoting. It might be Randall Jarrell, you know, where you talk about um, writing a good poem does feel like getting hit by lightning, you know, and it's an amazing kind of feeling, you know, and it's just like, yeah, and it takes it out of you, but wow, you know, and, you know, so what do you do? Well, you fly your kite in a thunderstorm is what you do, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you go out looking for trouble. So, so that's kind of motif of the sort of turn in hell, you know, can, can be sort of willfully repeated if you if you don't catch yourself on. So I think um, you know it's, it's important if you want to have a you know sort of a, have a relationship and you want to have a kind of you know sort of a, a reasonably long life that you that you find alternate means of getting mm-hmm. to what you need to do. That's why music's amazing like that, you know. And, and you know, and when always thinks of Bach as you know as, as a Simon Bonham, you know, it's just like in that regard, you know. And the way that CNN talks about Bach is like having ascended into heaven and a, a ladder of frozen tears, you know, and I love that because I mean, yes. he didn't have to feel anything, you know, he yeah. didn't have to put himself through the ringer, to, you know, to write that shit. Like, you know, it's just like he just didn't because his chops were so amazing. And you're thinking, if we could just, if you could just get your chops down, you know, uh, yeah, and nail yeah. it. But poetry, unfortunately, is a dirtier art form, you know, and, 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 and it's, um, it's hard to write without fracture and trauma, and uh, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and um, it's hard to write out of happiness. It's easy to write out of pain. Uh, poets can get in a very weird symbiotic relationship with pain, you know, mm-hmm. creating yeah. it, you know, yeah, yeah. just as yeah. a means well, to end. Yeah. Well, well, look, Don, I could go talking on, about this book with you for for hours, I think, but unfortunately, that is um, all we've got time for. Toy Fight is such an extraordinary book. I'll, I'll be pressing it on readers in the bookstore for months and years to come. I know uh, it's, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company from our bricks and mortar store. It's also available from our uh, from our website. Uh, I put the link in the the show notes to this episode. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, Don Patterson, thank you so much for joining us today. Lovely to talk to you, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.